I wonder when the last time that you got a real paper, handwritten letter from a friend was. I, I would imagine that given the proliferation and, and ease of digital communication these days, that this letter was, was likely incredi- incredibly meaningful for you, that, that someone would take time and use real energy to give you a truly personal message. When someone signals using that means, or, or any other for that matter, that they have a truly personal message for you, it tends to capture our attention. And as Paul closed his epistle to the Galatians, he began his ending by writing, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, as we think about that, scholars have puzzled and debated about the meaning of, of why he highlighted these, these large letters. Some say the whole letter was, was written in large letters, and, and now Paul is drawing attention to this because of some handicap that he had, which, which caused him not to be able to write very neatly. So, so he, he couldn't get small letters, and he's highlighting that. Others say that now he's switched to large letters here at the end to re-grab attention for his final exhortation. And yet others say that, uh, believe that he's been dictating the letter to a, to a, a stenographer, to a, st- a secretary. And here Paul scoops away the pen and, and writes with his own hand a different handwriting possibly uh, to, to authenticate the whole letter as his own in the first copy. Now, the thing is, regardless of what you make of that, uh, regardless of what the best explanation, his real emphasis in whatever one of those you pick has to be on the from me to you aspect of it. Right? It's large letters to you, in my own hand. And his point was to make this a a highly relevant personal communication from apostle to people signaling, look at this last thing that I am about to say to you. And then his final application in verses 17 to 18. From now on, Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, your spirit, brothers. Amen. And fascinatingly, his last exhortation is that he not be bothered by any more criticisms against his teaching, notably because he has Jesus' marks on his body. Now, here again, we come to where people make different things of this. Some think that these marks are scars from Paul's various injuries under persecution, which he's, he's mentioned here in the context. And others think that he simply means Christian baptism. And although the first is actually more likely in this context, clearly his main point, is that while the false teachers have demanded the sign of circumcision to be put on the Galatians' bodies, even though it proves nothing, 
Paul is identified by signs that draw attention to his relationship with Christ. And brothers and sisters, today we want to get to that point as well, that we might see how we might not be troubled as those marked by Christ. That's where we're going. Paul likely meant his physical scars as a physical mark, contrasting with circumcision, where one of these indicated that he'd suffered for Christ, where while the other, the Judaizers, wanted a mark to avoid suffering for Christ. Nonetheless, Whatever that mark may have been, if you are a believer, you are marked by your connection to Jesus. Paul, uh, whether whether by a physical sign of, of persecution, whether it's the spiritual fruit that manifests in your life, or whether it's your baptism and place at the Lord's table today, you are stamped by your connection to the risen Lord. And so we hope to see the reason today why you too might not be troubled. And so our main point is that only belonging to Jesus brings about results of everlasting value. Only belonging to Jesus brings about results of everlasting value. And we're going to think about this in three points together. The value of false teachers, the value of false righteousness, and the value of new creation. So first, let's think together about the value of false teachers. One of the regular occurrences in my life as a as a pastor is that people tell me about the things that they believe most often that's a very uh, privileged thing and a delightful thing sometimes people are telling me what they believe because they think i need to change my mind and adopt their view and most pointedly hoping that i'll change the practices of our church to match what they'd like to see uh, now of course that by trying to tell me that on my own, misunderstands the nature of how our session determines our church's practices, but that's beside the point here right now. The point is that when someone rather confrontationally presents their views to me, particularly when those views are are rather niche, well, my first question for them is to ask why... They, they think that this belief is so important. Why does this need to be the case? And that's important because sometimes people's motives for what they believe play a crucial role in the belief itself. Right? If I want to indulge my sinful desires, I might form a, a doctrinal stance wherein I dismiss the abiding value of God's law. Maybe I accuse those who who want to keep the Ten Commandments faithfully of being legalists, right? Allowing me to live 
godlessly, but to do so on theological grounds. That's just one example. There's countless uh, others uh, across the spectrum of seriousness. But Paul put it to the Galatians that this same principle about the motives, about motives, was an important consideration concerning their false teachers. Only in this case, the problem went the other direction from my example, from those who want to dismiss the need to pursue good works in the Christian life. These false teachers wanted to add even more works to Christians, but add them as a condition for justification, as a condition for being declared righteous in the sight of God. And Paul said in verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And so he, he drew attention to their double motive of one, one, wanting to make a good show and two, Avoiding persecution for Christ. And here, these motives crucially inform this situation in two ways. First, the false teacher's concern is for their own outward appearance rather than for Christ's gospel. They worried about how things look. It's an outward appearance. It's making a good show rather than being concerned about Christ, glory, and honor. And so the motives tell us that their work was for them rather than for the gospel. Second, second, their motives also tell us that they did not care about the Galatian readers as people or as believing brothers and sisters but cared only about building a reputation that protected their interests. Now let's think about that. Right? So imagine we have this prayer meeting, don't we, on, on Wednesday nights, and many of us get to gather together uh, for that special time together. Now imagine, though, uh, as, as I've regularly hosted this um, for us, imagine that at this meeting I actually never prayed. But I keep badgering you to be on the rota. Then imagine you also discover, which, by the way, this one is not true. <laughs> this one is for the sake of illustration. But imagine that you discover I make 10 pounds for every church member that prays on the rota. I'm glad that people are laughing at that one. You'd realize that my motives for encouraging you to, to uh, in this practice, were self, not only self-interested, but also hypocritical. I'm not even doing it. And we see that Paul highlighted this exact problem. The false teachers were not only self-interested in forcing the Mosaic Law upon the Galatians, but also failed to live up to their own standards. Verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 
They, they can't even do what they're telling others they have to do. And they're telling them that for their own interest. And so, the value of these false teachers, as you might have guessed from the outset, is essentially nothing. Their value is essentially nothing because they drained rather than added spiritual benefit. They drained rather than added spiritual benefit. And that brings us to our our second point. Because these teachers were teaching something. And so we ask the question concerning the value of false righteousness. The value of false righteousness. We, we know from our studies throughout this letter together that, that it's great themes. The two sort of pivot points that I've tried to emphasize have been the fellowship of the church and faith in Christ Jesus. And these two themes hold together because faith alone justifies us, thereby excluding anything else that might be come between Christians as an obstacle to our fellowship. Faith as, as the condition for justification excludes everything else that might be an obstacle to our fellowship. When we are joined to Christ by faith, we are joined to one another in fellowship. And we cannot add any other condition for being properly uh, accepted, for being properly Christian, so accepted in God's sight, or any other condition for being accepted in our community. And these themes recur throughout Paul's epistle to the Galatians because the false teachers in that church had imposed the the condition of keeping the law, especially circumcision, as a requirement for salvation. They said that there were things that someone must do other than believing in Jesus in order to be made right with God. And in reply... Paul not only argued that the false teachers have not lived up to their own standard, but that no one can meet this standard. And furthermore, these ceremonial laws do not truly have the power to make us right with God. When I was in secondary school, I I briefly worked at a pizza restaurant. Uh, And one of my first days on the job... One of my, the, the coworker of mine who was responsible primarily for stretching the dough out. Somebody ordered a pizza, he had to stretch the dough to put sauce and, and toppings on it. Uh, my coworker, primarily responsible for that, tore a hole in the piece of dough that he was, he was working on. And so he called me over as the new guy and he sent me to the back and said, I need you to fetch the dough repair tool. If you haven't figured it out, the trouble was no no such tool exists. Uh, It took me a minute to figure that out. But there is it. He just actually squishes the dough back together. But no tool actually exists for that problem. Yet, he sent me searching for it. 
And the false teachers in Galatia, as they sent these believers to the law for their justification, sent them looking for a tool that doesn't exist. There is no law that can act as a repair tool for our relationship with God. There is only one way to restore our standing with our Maker. And that's why Paul wrote in verses 14 and 15, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Phil Riken comments, there is a continual temptation for the church to turn the gospel into the cross plus something else. But for the gospel to be the gospel, the cross has to stand alone. Believer, your commitment to indifferent matters makes no contribution to your relationship with God. Rather, only the cross can free us from the condemnation that comes to us because of our sin. As as Jesus cleanses our sin and gives us His perfect righteousness, He makes us new creations. And, And Paul's point is that when you stand on the other side of the resurrection, no one's going to be checking your status as circumcised. Especially because in the new covenant, the administration of the, of the covenant of grace is better because baptism gets to be applied to men and women. And so, so why are we worried about that issue that doesn't do anything before the resurrection if it doesn't matter after? Of course, right, we we should not be worried about that issue. We should be worried about, we should be asking about what part of the new creation can we experience here and now. And we can be made alive with Christ, having the renewal of our souls even as we wait for the renewal of our bodies, all of which is given to us. In the Lord Jesus. And so the value of false righteousness, as you probably guessed, is also nothing. The value of false righteousness is also nothing. And so let us consider our final point the value of new creation. The value of new creation. And we won't read it again, but if we think again, if we think still about verses 14 and 15, we ought to recognize that Paul first stated the cross's importance followed by the new creation's importance because it is by being crucified with Christ that we receive new life and become new creations. He's told us this before. Galatians 2, 19 and 20. For through the law, 
I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The same pattern of of redemption in Christ resulting in new spiritual life is is again articulated in Galatians 4, 4 4-7. We won't read all of those together for the sake of time, but the same pattern's there. And you could read it again as it shows back up here in the conclusion. Having been buried with Christ, we are then raised with him to new life. And so we must ask, what is the value of this new life, this new creation? Well, all who live according to the rule, live according to the rule that new life comes through faith in Christ, crucified and raised, rather than through keeping the law, everyone who lives by that rule has peace with God. That's its value. Paul wrote in Romans 5.1, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here in Galatians, he concluded, And as for all who walk by this rule, the rule that I just explained, peace and mercy, and and I'm emphasizing that because people are going to load lots of things into walk by this rule. But follow what rule Paul is talking about. All is for all who walk by this rule. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The rule is that new creation results from being linked to Christ's death. Peace comes to, and mercy comes to all who live by that rule. Now, we read together Psalm 125. And do you remember how that psalm began? That those who trust in the Lord, those who have faith in Him, cannot be moved. It finishes. Peace be upon Israel. Likewise, Psalm 128 begins stating how all who fear the Lord, who trust in Him, walk in His ways. It finishes saying, Peace be upon Israel. And indeed, it's in, in the Greek, the, the phrasing is actually uh, peace be, up, be upon the Israel of God and mercy. So he's, he's, Paul is jamming peace upon Israel together in the original. And it seems Paul is drawing upon the Psalms tradition to assert that those with faith belong to the Lord and peace, as well as mercy, will be upon the true Israel which now is no longer the national Israel as a nation, like the false teachers hoped, but is upon the Israel of God, an important qualifier, because the Israel of God today is those from every nation with the faith of Abraham, faith in Christ who justifies the ungodly and takes away their sin. 
And so the value of new creation is everything because it means having Christ Jesus as our own. So as we close this letter together, this isn't just the end of another sermon. This is the end of a letter. We know that the imposition of false righteousness troubled the Galatians and troubled Paul as the teacher of justification by faith alone. Because of the principles of the pure gospel, Paul shoved aside these troubles as one marked for Christ. What troubles you, believer? I wonder what troubles might lay upon your heart this morning. Paul was troubled by opponents who disparaged him because he taught grace alone. Perhaps you are worried about being disparaged at work or in your friend group if you speak of grace alone or even just because others know you're a Christian. People don't like to hear and they don't like to know that you believe that they are sinful and cannot earn God's favor and so need His grace. If you're troubled like this, well... You keep good company with the Apostle, don't you? Christian, if you are troubled in this way, remember with Paul, as he spent so long explaining, that our gospel is not invented, but is revealed by God. We stand not on the the whispering fantasies of the human heart, but upon what God himself has said. Take heart. God's gospel is His power unto salvation. Now some in were troubled by other church members who excluded them from table fellowship. Right? And I wonder, regardless of objective assessments of the situation. I wonder if you are troubled by feeling left out or excluded. Are you weighed down by loneliness as these Galatians would have been? Well, note well that this letter rebukes that church for dividing their fellowship. And so, you, believer, need not be afraid to ask for more fellowship. We are here. We are not perfect. We as a church are not perfect at spotting every need. But we're eager to help where we can. Christ aims for his justified people to have peace with God and communion with one another. 
the Galatians as a whole were troubled by teachers who expected more from them than they could possibly do. They expected believers to trust in Jesus and fulfill the law to be justified in God's sight. Believer, are you troubled thinking that you are supposed to do something else for Christ and that you don't measure up for him? Maybe you think that there is some work or some good deed that if you could just do that, you would be enough for Jesus. Maybe you think there's some particular way you're supposed to feel and if you could just muster up the desires, passions, and commitment, well, then you would be enough for Jesus. Believer, take heart again because this book is not just about repairing fellowship in the church. It is about how we are right with God by faith alone. Faith that takes hold of Jesus. Because all who trust in Christ, for all of you, you need not fear what God thinks of you. Because he sees you in the Lord Jesus through the lens of his perfect righteousness imputed to you for justification. And so all who are marked with a connection to Jesus need not be troubled. It's fitting that as we finish this book about a church divided by not eating together, that we come today to the Lord's table in God's providence. Just as much as we commune with Christ in these elements, we commune with each other. We come equally to this meal. All of us need the same food. We are starving for grace because we are all sinners in need of God's mercy. And here, he feeds our souls on the risen Christ, nourishing us with new measures of the Spirit, calling us to eat of the Lord Jesus and his benefits by the same means of faith at the same time in fellowship. Let's pray. Father God, we are glad that we have peace with you because we have been justified by faith. And because we have peace with you, By faith, we have fellowship with one another. And there is every reason this morning for us to seek after you as the God of peace, the God 
who puts peace upon your Israel, your people. We pray for that here in LCPC. We thank you for the community we have. And we are glad for it. And we pray that you would sustain us in our communion together, in our good relationships, in our peace as a church, that we are not divided, that we are not backbiting. We pray that you would sustain that. We don't take it for granted. Churches easily slip into this at a moment's notice, God, and we bow in adoration at the gift you've given us. And we pray that you'd uphold us in it and that you would indeed even increase it. We pray, Lord, for our new pastor as he leads us, indeed, that you would give him peace in the task at hand. And that he would model 